Hello. Hi, Maria. Hi, Gordon. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Can you hear okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me pretty well? Yes. Great. So thanks so much for agreeing to help us out with this. Uh, I don't know if Zach told you a little bit about um, the project, but basically the idea is that um, we are putting together this podcast so we can talk to people um, and kind of document their experiences in DIY biology, um, their role in the field, sort of how the movement is growing. Uh, and we were excited to talk to you and your, your role about um, your, your work in, with uh, BioCurious and the iGEM teams that you worked on and sort of just uh, all your experiences in DIY bio. Sure. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk. <laughs> Great. Well, we really appreciate you helping us out with this. <clears throat> so um, just, I guess, to get started, just for the soundbite, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself and maybe um, what your title is at BioCurious? Sure. Hi, I'm uh, Maria Chavez. I'm a board member at BioCurious, and I run classes, events, and community projects there. Uh, so, Maria, your background, um, is it in biology? No, actually, I'm one of the many people who got into uh, community science and biohacking um, uh, through working at a space like BioCurious. My background is actually a bachelor's in programming and operating systems. I've got an MBA in global management and I've worked in a lot of different industries including in tech uh, for many years working at Apple. Um, I worked at a biotech company um, doing things like clinical research recruitment for clinical trials and working with stem cell researchers and that kind of got my interest in biology. Um, and got me interested in the whole field of biotech and when BioCurious opened it was something that really piqued my interest and I've been there since before we opened the doors as one of the first volunteers um, and I've stuck around and been hugely into the movement since then. So what was it about BioCurious or DIY biology that piqued your interest? Um, I think for me, at least, it was a natural uh, melding of things I was interested in. I'd been interested in the idea of hacking and tinkering with technologies as long as I can remember. I used to belong to the 2600 clubs back in the 90s, um, you know, attend the DEF CON, Hackers Convention, um, things like that. Uh, it's something I kind of fell out of when I uh, got more into my tech career. But when I found out that there was a way I could merge my new interest in biology and biotech with this aspect of a place where you could actually try it out and uh, it seemed like a natural you know evolution of things it just made perfect sense mm -hmm. do you see a lot of similarities or analogs or differences between the, the tech hacker movement and the DIY biohacker movement yeah and I see it in the positive way I think that one of the things that comes up a lot is why do we still use the term biohacker and there are some people in the community who aren't comfortable with it for me um, I equate it to people I saw who were doing absolutely you know not no one I know was ever working on any malicious projects they were looking on repurposing technology how can we get this old piece of technology to work with a new piece of technology um, I remember a friend of mine spent nine months writing a TCP IP stack for an old TRS-80 because one didn't exist just for the sheer sake of seeing could it be done. It was this idea of, you know, playing with things, um, in, uh, writing code, seeing if you could get systems to work together that weren't compatible just for the sheer sake of curiosity. And I see a lot of that um, paralleled with what's going on in the biohacking movement. It's people who aren't necessarily trying to do the bleeding edge stuff, but they're looking at things with a different approach and bringing a cu genuine interest and curiosity that um, the academics and the people who have been in the field a long time um, often seem to have lost.
Mm -hmm. So you're a, a project manager at BioCurious. Can you kind of describe um, what that what that role is? What your daily tasks are? Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm one of the folks that's there a little more often. I've been um, happily unemployed for the last five years <laughs> by choice. Mm -hmm. um, so that gives me a lot of free time. I homeschool my son in my free time um, as well. Um, but what I do is I try to give use my experience with project management, um, with other things I've done, to help guide the projects, help onboard new members onto projects. Um, and um, I've really tried to champion this idea of community science projects. Mm -hmm. um, to me, one of the things that we first discovered when BioCurious opened is that you've got lab benches, you've got things. But initially, what was interesting was that very few people were doing anything there. It's like, if you build it, they will come, and it turns out, eh, not so much. <laughs> um, a few months after we opened, we actually ended up having a very large a series of community meetings trying to figure out what are we going to do with the space now, and the idea of a big community science project discussion happened. And we actually brainstormed approximately 40, 45 project ideas that were all brilliant, um, some of them completely crazy, but they were really exciting, and we took two of those and ran with them. We ran with the uh, playing with bioluminescence, which actually eventually grew into the glowing plant company. Okay. Um, and uh, that started out as our first community project there, and the idea was just what can we do, what can we learn, let's just as a community teach ourselves and have other people help us learn what is bioluminescence. Um, and the second project we launched was uh, a DIY bioprinting. Can uh, biohacker space actually get into and play with uh, printing with cells? How did, can you talk more about the uh, DIY bioprinting project? And yeah, it's actually been the longest running project we've run. It's the only one that's still going um, from that era. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been over four and a half years now, myself and Patrick de Hasselier run that project together. Um, and the idea initially was just a, what is bioprinting and can we try to figure it out? And again, it reminded me exactly of those old days with the computer, um, hacking groups. We took a, an old printer we found dead on the side of the road, took it apart, learned how printers work, made some very simple modifications to the ink cartridge and cleaned it out so that we could actually load E. coli in it and did experiments for several months trying to figure out can we get this to become a bioprinter while we were reading up on what is bioprinting and teaching ourselves a lot about the technology. Did you have something in mind to print when you started out with this project? Oh god no. <laughs> Uh, so did you, were you successful? Did you come up with a, a printed uh, deliverable? Sort so of we, what we've ended up doing is the project is the, it's been running four and a half years. It's the longest running project we have. Um, we've ended up going through five hardware revisions. Each hardware um, design is a complete different framework. Um, uh, one of them, I think version two is on Instructables, and it also is kind of the framework for version three. Um, right now we're working on a whole different design that's, um, we're partnering with several other um, spaces on it. We've made it an open collaboration. Anybody in the world who wants to call into our meetings can um, collaborate with us. And we have narrowed down the focus of what we're going to print with, which is to try printing with plants. So we're working pretty hard to figure out how can you create the least expensive, easiest to use, 
open source um, DIY bioprinter and create a way for other people who want to do this to, for very low cost and f not needing a lot of skills, be able to get into bioprinting without needing a $100,000 stem cell lab and people doing maintenance on the cells every day, et cetera. And we think that plants are a really good framework for that. Mm -hmm. And no, we have not successfully done it, but we do have small successes. Um, the stated goal of the project is to print a leaf that will photosynthesize. That's pretty cool. Uh, so how many people are involved in this project? Uh, it's been pretty rotating. There's been two project leads the whole time. That's been myself and Patrick de Hasselier. I we didn't, we didn't start as the project leads. We're just the two people who have never stopped showing up. Mm -hmm. Um... And what ends up happening is that we, uh, there's no requirement for sticking with the project. Whoever shows up that night, we figure out w what they're interested in, and that's what we work with. It's a pretty inefficient management technique. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to keep it open for anyone of any age. The youngest contributor who's meaningfully contributed to the project was 11. Mm -hmm. And he actually wrote quite a bit of firmware on the uh, current version. Um, uh, and it's just a way for us to get people excited about the technology because I think that bioprinting is going to be one of those things that we don't hear about as much in the mainstream yet. But just explaining what it is, how it works, giving them a chance to work on a small portion of the project gets people really excited about science, and that's what we enjoy. Um, it's entirely a self-funded project. We are not in any hurry to finish it. We just very, very much enjoy working on it. So what are some of the, the backgrounds of the people that are working on this project? Are they a lot of biologists or people from totally different... Um, oh, no. Areas? We would be going so much faster if we had any biologists on this, specifically mm -hmm. botanists. <laughs> uh, we've had a really rough one last year, year and a half, trying to teach ourselves enough plant biology so we can figure out how to make cells for printing with. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have finally, in the last month, um, turned a corner on that. Um, and made some pretty significant progress in our lab work. And some of that's just that it's really slow to grow those plant cells um, uh, to make undifferentiated plant cells that don't have a cell type like stem cells. Um, uh, and so it's been a big learning curve for us. But uh, myself, you know my background, Patrick um, is a bioinformatician. So he does bioinformatics, but no wet lab work. Um, because we're in Silicon Valley, we end up with a lot of hardware and software engineers, and so they um, are able to contribute a lot to the hardware design, um, 3D modeling, things like that. But we have, we get generally kind of the, the bachelor's or master's students in biology interested in the project. We get a lot of college students. Uh, people tend to have a biomedical engineering background. I think that's what I see the most of coming to that project night. But I see just as many high school students. So um, you mentioned that you have a lot of, of hardware and, and software people working on the projects yeah. because you're in San Francisco. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that the culture of San Francisco, um, sort of like this, this startup entrepreneurial culture, factors into the atmosphere at BioCurious or how oh. that uh, informs any of the projects. Um, I think it absolutely does, although in, in, in strange ways, because it, like for our Glowing Plant project, that atmosphere definitely learned, leaned that project towards eventually becoming, um, I think, a company. You know, it just mm -hmm. was kind of a natural evolution. And we've had a couple of community projects kind of start to lean that way. 
Um, right now, we actually lean towards the other side of uh, Silicon Valley, which is this idea of open source. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a large movement here of people who are pretty passionate about open source software, the open source movement, and a lot of that is leaking into how we're approaching science and how we're approaching open collaborations. How has that changed uh, how you, you work on your projects at BioCurious? Um, I think that, you know, there, there is occasionally... Um, one of the things that changes is that people who come in who tend to be entrepreneurs are very confused at the idea of doing projects where no one is paid and you have zero interest in making a profit off of them and doing them just for the sheer sake of curiosity. So I think that's the biggest, um, most interesting thing we see because we do see a lot of people who are venture capitalists or uh, um, uh entrepreneurs, people who have started companies, etc., and they come in, and they immediately see a way to monetize this, and it's something that for most of the projects I work on, I'm not that interested in. You know, if I wanted to start a company, I'd start a company. What I want to do is get people interested in science and give them the ability to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, the, the lab is missing out on an important source of revenue by not monetizing some of these projects, or would you, you prefer uh. to keep it? Uh, I think that, science. you know, it, it's not the lab's project. I mean, the project belongs to the community. Mm -hmm. um, it sh could certainly be a revenue stream. Um, you know, we've got quite a few community projects right now, six or so. Um, uh, but we also have a lot of people doing startups at BioCurious. We tend to average anywhere between half a dozen to a dozen one- to two-person companies at any one time. So we certainly have that entrepreneurial spirit at the lab. Um, and I think for us, the projects we're doing are, you know, uh, in bioprinting, for example, there's a lot of people already there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people getting into it, and getting into it competitively requires um, a different dedication level, a different focus, uh, and looking at a different part of the tree. We're looking at the lowest hanging fruit, which is pl printing plants. How you would commercialize that on a printer that is not made for performance uh, you know, my business brain doesn't quite see it. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit earlier about the the process of coming up with project ideas, and I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, um, how you come up with uh, what projects you want to work on, what what factors you consider to make it tractable for the community, knowing that a lot of the people might not have a background in biology. On those yeah, so um, I can talk with that about the iGEM projects, actually, is a good example. Um, generally, we, we tend to go with a voting system, so people who want to work on the project will vote on what they want to work on. So for the both iGEM teams we ran, which was 2014 and 2015, we had roundtable meetings where people pitched their ideas. For 2015, I actually think we spent a little too long picking out a project, which cut into our project time to finish it. Um, and again, we ended up with a slate of over 30 project ideas. We actually basically um, narrowed it down by asking people to present a defense of their project and do a little bit of background research and figure out, is this actually doable? Has it been done before? Um, you know. And then we uh, split into like the final five projects that we were considering and had them do almost... Uh, five, ten-minute presentation as to why they thought this project had potential, what was interesting about it, uh, etc. So we, we just kind of like, you take everything from the craziest of crazy ideas 
I think one of them was, um, can you use microbes to mine titanium or something like that? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, all, all, you've seen, if you've seen iGEM projects, you know how outside the box thinking some of them can get. And Definitely. what we were trying to do is look for something that was practical and had some sort of, you know, we like something that has an interesting applications or gets people excited to work on it. So the first year it was fairly easy because uh, Mark Jewell had done some research for the past several years on this idea of creating bacteria that would produce casein proteins mm -hmm. that are needed for cheese. And that's how Real Vegan Cheese came about was um, he had a very compelling pitch and people were instantly latched onto this idea of um, doing that. However, we've still managed to keep that project um, open source because we've got enough funding for it. Uh, for now at least, um, that we can continue to work on that. Uh, still haven't finished that project either, but, um, uh, you know, it just depends on whether or not the project is something that people, you know, if it's a silly one-off one project, like we would like to build one thing to accomplish one goal, you might not attract a lot of people. If it's got something like real vegan cheese where it appeals to the vegan, it appeals to people who are interested in climate change, it appeals to... Um, people who just want, you know, healthier food alternatives or different food alternatives, it, you can get a lot more people interested. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that's just marketing of how you market the project ideas. Um, last year's project did not get as much traction, although we're still working on it, um, which was uh, evolved sunscreen. So can we get bacteria to produce a better, less harmful sunscreen that wouldn't cause coral bleaching? Mm -hmm. um, and that one has a much smaller team, but I think the science behind it is much more interesting than just producing a single protein. And so we're enjoying that and continuing to do that. And we find that the high school and um, college student level participants are the ones that are really interested in sticking with it. So I'm glad you brought up the iGEM um, projects. I was going to ask if you could uh, talk a little bit more about the Real Vegan Cheese project sure. and uh, sort of the background on that. Um, yeah, so like I mentioned, Mark Jewell, whose idea it initially was, who's still with the project, um, had had this idea from, I think, two or three years, and had kind of, you know, tried to get people interested in it, in collaborating with him on it, and just hadn't quite gotten the momentum to do anything around it, and pitched it at the iGym meeting, and it was, you know, he had enough of the background research already done to make a pretty compelling pitch, and that one just... That was really phenomenal grassroots snowballing of effort because initially we were only trying to raise $5,000. You know, we wanted about a dozen people on the team. We ended up with about 40 people contributing um, uh, to the process, which means we didn't get a lot of science done, but we got a lot of non-scientists engaged in the scientific process. Mm -hmm. um, and the Indiegogo campaign we did raised 37000 which was the most at the time ever raised by an iGEM team. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and we're still using, we still have quite a, quite, um, over maybe half of that left. Um, uh, and I think some of it is just that it made people think about where is our food coming from? What is the cost, carbon <clears throat> cost of this food? What is happening? Um, it was the first time people really had said for a long time the vegan community is opposed to GMOs and there was a project that they said, oh, maybe we're not as opposed to GMOs as people think we are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that uh, some of that's just the way that we pitched it, the way we were marketing it. Um, it got people just excited.
it still gets people excited. It's one of the highest um, turnover rates as far as people showing up and wanting to help. Um, we've been a little bottlenecked on some of the protein um, designs for a while. We're trying to shake that out. Um, and we are constantly being asked if we want to turn it into a company. And so far, the majority of the team does not want to, but we are exploring you know, options for licensing or other things after we actually manage to get something successful. Mm-hmm. So you, you had a lot of people working on the project that were yeah. non-scientists, but you said yes. you got really involved, learned a lot. In terms of this project, um, what was like the definition of success for you in this project? Um, so I think f- that's always a hard one. I mean, obviously success for us in this project will be can we actually show that we've made um, those casein proteins we're going after four sort of, we're trying to synthesize 11 total, um, but there's four specific we need, and it's the kappa casein. If we can get kappa casein, that would be our first tier success, and we thought we would have gotten there about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been slow. Uh, I think our next level of success is, can we um, actually then produce enough of these proteins, turn them into casein micelles, and, and actually, even if it's just a very small a gram or two, can we actually produce a small amount of cheese? Okay. Um, and then from there, you know, we'll have to figure out what would it take to actually scale up production. You know, we don't know, for example, how efficient are the bacteria producing these particular proteins. Right now, they seem to be having a lot of problems with some of them with the phosphorylytic tail. Um, uh, is there anything we can do to improve that design process? Um, can we work with, you know, I'm pretty active with the new Harvest uh, group and keeping in touch with and promoting the other companies out there that are bringing um, cultured foods out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's something we're very passionate about seeing alternate foods out there and supporting the other companies in that space while we work on our project. Um, you know, I think the top tier success for me personally, I don't know about the whole team, would be can we get this successful and get it in the hands of cheesemakers across the country to give them an alternative source of milk proteins to the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of the things I've always said, and uh, I know Mark and other people feel, is that when you have technology that's in a single company's hands, it's a really big risk because that company, if they don't succeed, you know, that technology may never come to light. So the opportunity with open source is if you can get the technology into a lot of people's hands, um, it's more likely it could be adopted. So, you know, if you can get the these cheese proteins into the hands of people who already know how to make cheese and make good tasting cheese and understand the cheese manufacturing process um, instead of having one company like Kraft Cheese um, controlling the technology Mm -hmm. uh, it's more likely to get market adoption and and I think it's a lot fairer we're not trying to put cheese makers out of business we would just like cows to not be treated horribly and die and you know increase the amount of antibiotics used and mm-hmm. the carbon impact on our environment to enjoy a good cheesy pizza sure um, so you guys were pretty successful with that project at the iGym competition yes we did win a uh, an award for that uh, I guess so when you when you won the award what, what did that feel like was that was uh, the first Community Lab Award for BioCurious, right? Yes, that was actually the first year that iGEM allowed Community Lab projects. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very, very exciting for us. It was something we had been petitioning iGEM for three, four years at that point to allow Community Labs to participate in iGEM. 
um, and they were very concerned uh, about the safety issues around that. And so after a fairly long campaign of chatting with them, um, trying to figure out how could we do this, you know, I think GenSpace absolutely led the way um, in the, those conversations with iGem, um, as did some of the other DIY labs. It was nice to see a project be able to compete with um, uh, at that level and be seen by the people at iGem. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was just exciting for us. And for me personally, it was exciting that we could send some of our high schoolers there and they could get that experience. What do you think changed the minds of the iGEM um, leaders to allow community labs to compete? I think it was just seeing what happened. You know, I think when, when the first labs like uh, GenSpace and BioCurious opened up, nobody was quite certain what would come out of this. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the public reaction going to be? Are there going to be any accidents? Are they going to weaponize Ebola, you know? Right. Um, you know, well, you've heard all the fears the public oh, yeah, has about, about spaces. Um, and so I think everybody was just kind of waiting to see what would happen. And what ended up happening were things like, um, you know, companies being launched, uh, successful projects coming out of it, a general interest um, and people getting kind of excited about the technology. So I think it was just a, you know, waiting to see if we were mature enough to be ready to compete. And again, how, what would, they had to figure out what would satisfy their safety um, issues. Mm -hmm. um, and they've done that. Uh, and we enjoyed competing in 2014, 2015. But due to the cost and the time it takes to roll an iGEM team out, we did not do one this year. Okay. Um. So 2014, you, you win this award, yeah. and then you come back to San Francisco. Is that is everybody excited to keep working oh. on this project, or oh, are yeah, you guys ready to move absolutely. on to the next one? What was interesting for it is that most iGEM teams, and I think that's what different, it's a bit different for the community labs, or at least our lab, um, don't see iGEM as the end goal. And I think that that's one of my disappointments with a lot of iGEM teams, is they win the award, and then they're done. Mm-hmm. Um, this really promising research may not necessarily go forward um, unless a team the next year picks it up. Um, because, you know, people graduate, they just move on. So you don't have a core group working on it. Um, for us, iGEM was uh, useful. It validated some of the work we were doing. It was great for both BioCurious and Counterculture Labs who collaborated on that. Um, but it was not the end goal. It was merely one point on the journey. And for about, you know, for, and, and even with our uh, uh, bio sunblock project, you know, iGEM, attending iGEM uh, was exciting, but it wasn't the end goal. The end goal is the finishing the project. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so I, I think it's really interesting that your background is in, in tech. And I, I see a lot of people in the DIY bio movement who have um, this really strong tech or computing background, um, sometimes it seems like almost more people than, than biologists with that yeah, background. Yeah, absolutely, for us. Yeah, do you, do you, how do you think that influences your views of biology? Um, Where I guess, I does it, it change what... it makes us overly yeah. uh, optimistic with what we can do with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe because we, we don't have, always have the background, um, Understanding it takes us a long time to work on projects because we just don't have the fundamentals. Um, so just, you know, teaching people sterile technique, teaching them basic lab principles, teaching them basic um, 
organic chemistry and things like that. Uh, however, some of the mindset as far as how you work on things and the... To me, it's, it's, it's a combination of just not just being able to understand the material, but are you somebody who will take on a project and work on it? Um, because biology is not a quick science. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not something like uh, you can roll off, you can sit at home and you can work on an app and you can roll it out over a couple of weekends or, I mean, realistically over a couple of months. But um, the turnover time for biology is much slower because you have to wait for cells to grow. And it's a long time before you can find out whether what you just did worked. Um, mm -hmm. You have to work a lot externally. So you know, maybe you're sending things out for sequencing. You're waiting for primers or oligos to arrive. You're, you know, um, there's a lot of downtime. Um, and the kind of mindset of people who are willing to push through things like that, I think, are very compatible with engineers and computer people, etc., so you'll 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 see people with that sort of mindset um, who who can see the long term goals and are willing to just kind of go nose to the grindstone and just show up every week and work on it, which isn't everybody. I mean, we have ridiculously high turnover rates on our community project. The majority of people show up for one week and then never come back. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of um, I guess intertwining of of the tech aspect into the biology that you do or do you, do you oh, yeah. yeah do you think those no, two our fields are, yeah, are, are together way heavy heavily favored for hardware projects than they are biology projects mm -hmm. and that's just a um we could use more biologists to help lead projects uh and that's why we have things like our bioprinter project which is what about half engineering half biology um, our DIY microscope project, we're trying to build a lab-grade um, single-molecule fluorescent micros microscope, and that's a 100% engineering project. Mm -hmm. Eventually, now that we're almost finished with that after 18 months, um, uh, it'll turn into a biology project as we actually, sort of, it'll probably turn into a microfluidics group, but um, we'll start actually working with cells here once we get it a little further along mm -hmm. to start testing it. Um, our quantum biology group, again, has very little biology. It's all quantum right now, all engineering. Um, you know, and I think that's just who's there. And, and I think that, you know, in the DIY community, there's a lot of room for designing open source hardware and for figuring out how can biologists contribute to the movement. Mm -hmm. But uh, equally, I have a lot of my members, some of the most active members I have, have no degree in biology and over the last two or three years have come up to speed enough that they are doing some amazing projects in yep. the lab doing lab work wise okay yeah I'm really excited to hear about the fluorescence microscope project that's something I've been thinking about so that's cool that you guys are working on that yeah we're almost done we um we took an Illumina gene sequencer mm -hmm. um you can find them relatively easy for not too much the old ones and we um, redesigned it into being a high-end microscope. That's cool. And so we'll put all the 3D printable parts that you would need to use, etc. It's just taking forever to design them all. Mm -hmm. um, and you need to source some other things. We're trying to figure out if you can do it for about under maybe $5,000 to build the whole thing. Okay. So it would still be a pretty significant chunk of change. But we were trying to figure out, and we're, we'll know once we get a little further, you know, what type of... 
microscope are we looking at? But it's probably about the equivalent of maybe a seventy-five to one hundred and fifty thousand dollar microscope. Um, phase two of this project, once we finish where we are now, is going to be maybe put adding a confocal to it and actually building a DIY confocal. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, we're 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 having a lot of fun, but again, these projects are open source because we know other labs are going to need them, and a lot of the design process slows down because one of the things myself and other people on the team try to promote is let's not do this in the easiest way. Let's do this in a way that other people can also reproduce it, and it makes you know sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a question at the top of my head, and then I just blanked because I was astounded by how cool that project is. <clears throat> yeah, that's actually been great. I mean, the team on that, I just, it, it's been a solid group of engineers. We're really lucky. We've got a couple of people with, um, I think, two with PhDs in optical engineering. Um, we've got somebody who's just a high-end mechanical engineer who has modeled probably 80% of the parts for the project. It's really slow because he's got a full-time job, so maybe it'll take mm -hmm. him a month to do a design. Um, but... You know, the quality of design work and the quality of collaboration we're able to have on this has been extremely high. And it's really fun to just get together and work on it for a few hours every week, once a week. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this uh, even open source projects, like this microscope one can be expensive, uh, yeah. $5,000. What do you think is, is the value of a community lab as opposed to, for example, uh, a few people that meet in a garage hacking space? in terms of, of social value or economic value of maybe saving money on um, some of these bigger projects? Yeah, I think that there's a certain amount of, you know, it, whether the, the advantage, obviously, over a community of a community space is the safety issue. To us, that's one of the biggest things um, is safety, 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 safety. Um, and a community lab offers you the advantage of having a safety group, of having a place you can have reagents shipped to, which you usually can't to your home. Um, of getting people from the community uh, who might never, who might be wary of coming to a garage project between like three or four friends mm -hmm. um, who will just randomly drop in. Um, so, you know, some of the people who have stuck with the project just randomly found us on Meetup uh, and said, oh, that sounds somewhat interesting. And then they showed up and they've just kept coming back because they really enjoy working on our projects. Mm -hmm. So, looking ahead uh, towards the future of community labs. Yeah. Um, so, we're doing all this science in community labs, but there isn't really uh, a, a clear-cut infrastructure for disseminating the science other than open source. Uh, do you envision, um, for example, a journal of, of community lab projects that could, that could be published? Or, or what's, um. what's the, the future of community labs? Yeah, I think one of the big things that I personally would like to see is more collaboration between the community labs. I think where we've been at right now is that in the U.S. and worldwide, all of these labs have been in the let's get started phase mm -hmm. and let's get established and let's get um, enough going that they can be stable. The next phase will be um, um, how do we grow, and I think part of that growth needs to be forming some sort of network between each other because especially for science science is not done in a bubble and a lot of these projects it would be great to be able to say I have people who want to do X but we need someone to tell us how to do X mm -hmm. and I have someone who wants who has an expertise in this but doesn't have a lot of time but can advise people and getting people to mentor other people in projects um, and can you know collaborate on projects would be great um, uh, 
So I think that's the next evolution. What, how that's going to come about, I don't know, because I don't see or feel a ton of collaboration between all the different lab spaces at this point, or a lot of communication between them. Um, I think that the O'Reilly publication, Biocoder, is a great place to publish stuff. It's where we've been publishing a lot mm -hmm. of our projects. Um, you know, our DIY gene gun that one of our members at BioCurious did was in, not this issue, the last one, Open Insulin, um, you know, uh, a lot of other projects were in there. Uh, uh, Real Vegan Cheese, etc. But how we actually get the community itself to organize, I'm not sure. I know there's been attempts to, but I don't think any of them have stuck yet. Mm -hmm. So um, what do you think has to happen for Lab to get out of the getting started phase and move on to the next? Well, I, and it's been a while. I mean, for us, we were, we, we were in that phase for a really long time. It was a couple of year, quite a few years. I think we, we had to get to the point where we were cash flow positive because I don't think you can really think about growth until you're there. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to figure out, you know, have enough members, have enough momentum that you're, you're stable because I don't know that it's useful for you to be collaborate. I think it is useful to collaborate, but it's not what you want to build it on. You want to figure out your own identity. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, and you know, I'm not really sure how all the other labs are, but it feels like a lot of them are getting pretty stable. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of momentum, and people are constantly finding out about DIY bio. I know I get calls all the time, and I, you know, have to look at the DIY bio list and say, "Oh, you're here. Talk to this lab. It's the closest to you." Mm -hmm. But there's only about 35 groups in the U.S. Um, so that's not even one per state. Right. Was there ever a point uh, while you were um, working at BioCurious that you guys thought, well, we're not going to make it? Oh, officially, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I, 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 it's, been a, it's been a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, I think we only hit upon our, you know, financial, financially somewhat stable formula um, in the last year or two um, that's given us some breathing room. Um, uh, and that's, you know, not relying on a single income stream. So having a combination of memberships, classes, events, um, uh, etc. So having a good mix of things. Um trying to have, you know, a good stable board, having good leadership, um, figuring out what it is, you know, do we want to put an emphasis on classes, you know, do we want to put an emphasis on trying to get entrepreneurs in, etc. Mm -hmm. So how did you um, choose the emphasis that you chose? Uh, who showed up to work on stuff? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if somebody's passionate about something, then they should be the one uh, championing, championing that. I personally... Am really really passionate about um, community projects. Community science, democratizing science, are my absolute favorite things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I have put a real emphasis on that and education. So recruiting instructors, okay. so reaching out to people and being pretty proactive. Um, I have a bit of a background. I've done a lot of corporate training as part of my career, teaching corporate training classes, and so working with instructors. I don't know. Actually, at this point, I probably could be teaching more, but um, working with people who are have lab skills 
knowledge and helping them to develop um, classes. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be like a huge class series. It could just be a, hey, why don't you show up and give a talk on what it is you do professionally? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's been really helpful. And then that gets people into your space. It gets them interested. It, you know, gets people doing science. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the, the biggest thing that you've learned either about DIY Bio or the community or yourself um, from your work at BioCurious? I think I would say... Um, I, I would say that my views on GMOs have somewhat changed as a part of my work there. I'm very openly pro-GMO. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that Monsanto is the best company ever. But I think our uh, political narrative on that has just irritated me. Um, and I think what I've realized is um, that people are very science illiterate and a lot of our policies and things that are shaping what's happening are because we don't trust science and we're not paying attention to why it happens. So things like climate change, people not vaccinating, people not trusting GMOs. Um, what, what has occurred to me over the last five years is that if I want to see these things change, we have to educate people. Mm -hmm. And that's been my big realization that I came to that I did not have several years ago. Mm -hmm. And do you think um, community labs are the best way to, to tackle that problem? No, but I think that we don't have a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that they're a unique opportunity to tackle that problem. Um, we saw that with real vegan cheese. You know, people don't trust GMOs. They don't trust, in generally, this idea of genetic modification. Um, but a lot of that comes out of distrust of corporations and distrust of government. Mm -hmm. You know, when the government says that GMOs are good, no one trusts it. When Monsanto says, oh, this technology works, no one trusts it. When a group of independent, not-for-profit biohackers with not a lot of biology exper experience says, hey, we want to make mutant cheese, suddenly people get really excited. And so for some reason, I think that the DIY community has this opportunity to bridge the gap between the public and um, uh, science. And because we're not independent, we're not trying to make money, because we can let them try it out you can bridge that fear gap. Do you think that community labs and these sort of open source, not-for-profit um, community science projects are sustainable as we transition into, uh, I guess, more of, of something analogous to like the electronics DIY revolution where people are doing these things in their garage um, with, the, with the mindset of we want to start a company uh, and becoming more involved in the economy as opposed to just, um, you know, this, this sort of thing that people are doing to get involved in science or for education? Uh, I guess it depends on how good you are at running things. Um, to me, absolutely. You know, um, I, I would like to think that a lot of people haven't lost their interest in just tinkering with computers. Mm -hmm. And we're not all just trying to make the next uh, killer app to make money. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who, who yeah, again, it could just be the people I know, who work on free software projects because, not because they get paid, because they don't, but they're just, you know, passionate about compilers, they're passionate about the Java language, and they write, help write libraries for it, and, you know, they, they want to see and make the world better with technology, and they're just curious, and they want to try something, like, what happens if I write an X, what happens if we publish Y, what, you know, what can we do with an Arduino and a bunch of LED lights, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and for biology, I think that, that as people become more interested in it and as we corporate, incorporate it into 
our daily lives a little more with all these new companies that are bringing consumer biology projects forward. Um, I think there'll always be a place for people to want to come and do that, and it will just depend on the spaces themselves to decide, are we more interested in being an incubator space supporting entrepreneurs, or are we interested in being that kind of makerspace? Because makerspaces are the biggest model we can look at. You know, um, Most of them are still focused on the tinkerers. They have an equal number of entrepreneurs to help support them as well, but it's the hobbyists and the people who just want to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was at a, a discussion on citizen science yesterday where um, the group struggled a lot defining or, or I guess characterizing the difference between the phrase citizen science or DIY biology or, or maker or hacker. How would you define, uh, I guess, your brand of, of science personally or at, or at BioCurious? Yeah, uh, we 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 go, we actually just had this discussion Wednesday night. Oh, really? Uh, it, it seems to come up at least once a week, and I think that that's just a uh, overall community identity crisis we're having. Um, mm-hmm. The way I like to look at it is, those of us in the community who don't have a science background seem to more easily embrace citizen scientist or biohacker. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it depends whether or not you have this image of hacking as a malicious computer intrusion of people stealing your credit cards or trying to launch nuclear weapons by hacking, or if you have, again, as I have, that kind of nostalgic look of the computer hacking clubs. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it's got very positive connotations, the white hat hackers, um, people who just want to play with technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So I very happily embrace that term. Um, I find that people at our lab, especially those who are professional scientists for their day jobs who have PhDs, are extraordinarily averse to the term, with one or two exceptions, um, and they are very much more, we are scientists. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, we engage in community-based science, but, you know, what we're doing is science. And so I think we just need to figure out, as a DIY community, as far as branding goes, what do we want to be and embrace it instead of continuing to have this crisis of who and what we are? Mm-hmm. Do you think it matters which which term we choose? Um, it, I mean, it obviously matters. I think what matters more is that the discussion doesn't continue on too long because it takes away from the larger discussions for what is our purpose, what are we doing, how do we make the community stronger. So I think if you spend too much time discussing what do we call ourselves, Mm-hmm. You know, we could call ourselves something utterly ridiculous, you know. And as long as you own it, I think that um, it doesn't much matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of, some of, I mean, it, it, I, I shouldn't be so, so off the cuff because it does matter in a way because, you know, it somewhat will identify what direction people who use that term are going in. Um, so, as someone who's so heavily involved in a community lab, have you experienced a lot of, of pushback from people who either don't know what the community bio lab is or what it does, or just general, um, I guess, the community that's not involved in this this movement? Not as much as you'd think. Again, we may be a little sheltered in Silicon Valley, so crazy ideas are pretty accepted here. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we're, we're a place where, where lots of people do, do things. And so we're certainly not the craziest thing to come out of Silicon Valley. I think everybody always has that initial, you're doing what? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a fear response to anything new. Um, uh, and that's that education viewpoint. We get out in the community a lot or we try to, 
-hmm. So we do things like um, we always have our we go to Maker Fair, we go to the East Bay Maker Fair. I was just at San Jose Maker Fair. We hope hold a, all these classes on Meetup to get people to come in. We partner with um, doing events with the Tech Museum here, the California Academy of Science, um, other groups, and we just try to get out there and let people know. You know, when they initially think of biohacking or citizen scientists, they there's that fear response, I suppose. Um, but when you tell them the kind of projects you're working on, suddenly they get really curious. They're like, "Oh, vegan cheese, that sounds interesting. Oh, bioprinting, I want to try that. And mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you about open insulin, but... Yeah. Uh, I guess I don't want to exhaust you. I'm sure you talk about all these projects all the time. Uh, yeah, I guess you can ask about open insulin. I'm always happy to talk about that one. That's one of our newest projects. It's mm -hmm. not based at BioCurious. Um, it's actually based in Oakland at Counterculture Labs, but I am a very happy um, somewhat participant in that. I can't get up for the lab work very often, but I, you know, along the lines of launching these projects to be collaborative, we have an open conference call. Mm-hmm. For every meeting, that means for us in the Bay Area, because of traffic, a lot of people can't make all the meetings. So having an option that anybody can call in to the meetings makes it a lot easier to collaborate. Sure, sure. So I can attend all the meetings. I can help out with things. You know, I can find out when lab work's going to happen. Um, anyone else can do that as well. Um, and it's a great project. It's one of, I, I, I honestly think it's one of the most ambitious projects any of the labs is trying to do. Uh, is that daunting? Uh, I find it exciting. Exciting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one is met with the most skepticism, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that that means we shouldn't do it. I, you know, to me, a success for that project is obviously actually creating insulin um, and bringing it to market, but a secondary success is just raising awareness and screaming from the top of our lungs, it is not fair that there is no generic insulin in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing public awareness to it, and if, you know, we inspire some other group to bring a generic insulin to the U.S. before um, ours actually finishes, I would not be upset about that. We'd be, you know, contributing to the national conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I say that from somebody who is an outspoken marketing, you know kind of person. We obviously do want to work on the science side of it a lot, and we put a lot of time into that. And we're pretty passionate, and we're reaching out to a lot of different um, uh, diabetes groups and trying to figure out who we can partner with for different phases of the project. Mm -hmm. So is this project um, collaborative with BioCurious at all? Is it mostly just um, it's, counterculture? Uh, it's, it's a counterculture labs project. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose we could be doing more at BioCurious. We just don't have anybody doing lab work there. Okay. Do you guys um, interact a lot between the two labs? Yes, very much so. Um, I think myself and Patrick tend to be the two biggest go-betweens. Um, but uh, Counterculture Labs came out of a lot of BioCurious members. Mm -hmm. um, and they're entirely different. They have different board structures. But we very much feel that we're sister labs. So we collaborate on a ton of things. We, you know, keep an eye out for equipment for each other. We, you know, promote each other at all events that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just in the spirit of there's no reason to try to push one or the other, you know. Right.
so I don't want to uh, keep you too long. I think I've I've got most of my my questions answered. Is there anything else that you want to uh, mention or talk about or that, about the DIY bio movement or your experiences? Um, I would just like to say that I'm just super excited at seeing how much it's grown from you know this crazy idea five years ago, six years ago. Um, to where it is now, I'm very personally excited about what's happening worldwide and seeing all of the labs that are popping up um, across different countries to see what's happening in Latin America is really exciting to me and seeing how some of those projects are working to try to address regional problems. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for DIY to tackle some big issues whether it's climate change or Zika or anything else, you know, figure out how can we leverage this enormous amount of intellectual capital out there that's just not being utilized mm -hmm. to do some really exciting projects. Are you optimistic about the future of DIY? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I'm overly optimistic about life, so take that with a <laughs> grain of salt. That's a good place to be, though, I think. It's better to be overly optimistic than totally negative. Are you going to be at uh, the Biohack the Planet conferences next weekend? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I know Zach's going to be there. I won't be able to make it, but yeah. I'm excited about that. That should be a, a pretty cool... Uh, this is the first one, right? Yeah, this is yeah. the first one. I think that that's part of the evolution of DIY growing up some, is starting to have our own conferences, starting to get the community talking, starting to figure out how do we network the community together, Mm -hmm. How do we how do we make the connection? I think the first step is making the connections. Right. Um, I think that you know it's not just the the DIY community. I think the maker community is going through the same thing. Um, you know, they had the national DC conference on making, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure Hive Bio was at. Yep. Um, in DC about two weeks ago, and I think a lot of this momentum just tells me that it's not slowing down. If anything, it's going to speed up a whole lot more in the next year or two. Yeah, it should be exciting to see what happens. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, I think that's all I have. Uh, so, again, if there's anything else, um, feel free to jump in or email me anytime. But thank you so much for helping us out. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Yeah, that was I great. Really happy to talk. <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting stuff. That was uh, one of my favorite interviews so far. But don't tell the <laughs> others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, if you're interested in any of the projects, uh, go to biocurious.org. Um, mm -hmm. On the, the top list is projects. We've got wikis and links to most of the community projects. I think I updated it a couple months ago. Okay, great. And if uh, there's anyone at Biocurious or Counterculture Labs that you think would be uh, a good person to interview... Um, yeah. Oh, I can think of tons yeah. of people, depending what you're interested in. Um, Johan um, Sosa is always good to talk to about CRISPR-Cas9 projects. Okay. Um, if you want a teen perspective on um, biohacking, mm -hmm. one of our members, Vardan um, Ambadi, he uh, did his science fair projects at BioCurious two years in a row, and actually, um, as a senior in high school, just taught our classes this summer called Teens Teaching Teens. Okay. Where he had he as a teenager taught other teens um, lab techniques and how to do uh, microbiology. Oh, very cool! Yeah, it was one of the most successful things we've ever done. He's just he's an absolutely amazing kid, um, and just shows me and I want to show other people, you know, the potential out there mm -hmm. to get involved in that sort of uh, mentorship program. Yeah, 
Well, that's exciting. Yeah, I might uh, have to keep in touch with you then and, and get some of the yeah, contacts yeah. for some of these people and other people because we're always looking for more people to interview. Yeah, and other than that, if you haven't talked to Patrick DeHasselier, you absolutely should. Okay. Yeah, I'll email you about that too and see if I can't get his... Yeah, Pat Patrick's on, on, uh, on all the same projects I am mostly. Okay. Sure, yeah, that sounds like he'd be interesting to talk to too. Great. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. And uh, so I don't know um, when this content will go into an episode. <laughs> We're uh, backlogged. Yeah, uh, it takes some time to make them. But uh, we'll definitely let you know and uh, let you listen to it before we put it out and make sure that you're happy with everything. Awesome. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. No problem. Well, you have a good Friday and have a good weekend. And... Uh... I will see some of you at least at uh, Biohack the Planet. Yeah, thanks. You too. Okay, have a good day. Bye. Bye.